Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the Restless Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And with me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. Where do you want to start us off? What about, I mean, we don't like talking about him because he's just so awful, but Mark Haynes wants to know, why did Boris Johnson and the former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison go to Israel? What could they possibly achieve there? And is this their role? What did you make of it? Well, I think their visits will be welcomed by the Israeli government. I mean, I think the Israeli government made a great deal of their visits because they saw it did as they? a sign of solidarity. Yeah, and they, they, there were a lot of photographs put out and not kind of newspapers you'd read, but the Telegraph, for example, page three had sort of half the page showing Boris Johnson walking through Jerusalem, looking you know anxious with Israeli ministers with him. I think it's something that Israel is looking for big public symbols of solidarity. And sure enough, he came out and gave a very strong pro-Israeli statement. So I think it's it's largely symbolic. What did you make of what he's up to? I was slightly turned off it when I saw that the, he did a, quote, exclusive interview with GB News. Uh, Which he's just, new, got a, just got a job at, hasn't he? His new employer. Well, and I noticed the Telegraph, although it carried the photograph, had very little about him because I imagine they're a bit irritated that this person who they used to pay £250,000 a year to is now GB News and a column of the mail. So. Yeah, yeah. I just find uh, Johnson and, and Morrison to a lesser extent, but they both to me are just the symbols of the, the populism that we should be getting rid of and not giving them that much of a platform. So I don't know. I must tell you, by the way, I, I spoke at the Mansion House the other night at a, a dinner and the catering was provided by the Clink, you know, the Clink yes, charity. Yes, yes. A wonderful charity. Fantastic. It started in Brixton. So yep. quickly remind people about Clink if you want to support it. So lovely idea. And the idea is to train prisoners up in different bits of catering. They run a prison, uh, they run a restaurant in Brixton Prison called The Clink where you can go and eat. But also when prisoners who've been through the program leave the prison, they're often met at the gate, they're helped into a job, they have catering companies who help employ them. Well, they do city and gills while they're there. So the, the, the dinner that we had at the Mansion House, the catering was done by guys on day release. Amazing. Anyway, what it meant was that I was able to start my speech by getting everybody to thank the caterers and say that by the time we get to our comfortable beds, the chef who's just cooked us that wonderful meal will be back in his cell in Brixton. And wouldn't it be marvellous if in a year's time the same function was performed by Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson? Uh, And it went down very, very well. uh, I got told off, actually. I gave a speech at St. Martin's in the Fields and um, got slightly told off for referring to Boris Johnson in my speech. Somebody said to me, your, your speech would be more powerful if you hinted that that's who you're referring to, but that you discredit yourself okay. by saying it. Should, should we have a, unless something dramatic happens to him in the next month, shall we not mention him for at least a month? Very good. Excellent. That's very good. Okay, excellent. Um, it's a very interesting question from Russ McNaughton. What do you make of the idea that Robert Malley was steering the US towards allowing Iran to be a more dominant power in the Middle East? So this is a real inside Washington baseball story, I would have thought for 99% of listeners. Rob Malley is somebody that I know a little. He 
was an American diplomat. He was the special envoy for Iran. He played a very important part in Obama's um, negotiations around the nuclear deterrent. He ran the International Crisis Group as the predecessor to Comfort Eero, who we are about to interview on leading. And Rob has been suspended, and there's not much clarity around why he was suspended. And it appears to be suggestions going around that he'd mishandled classified documents. But at the heart of it all seems to be a disagreement within the administration around the way that Rob and various people that Rob was working with were reaching out to Iran and dealing with the Iranian media and with Iranian expatriate groups. But fascinated that this is the story that Russ McNaughton's got his fingers around. And it is interesting because Rob Malley was one of the most trusted central parts of the Biden team. And it's very interesting that he's been suspended. Are you, are you hinting there that he was possibly thought to be getting too close to the Iranians? Yeah, that seems to be the implication. Yeah. Because one, one of the things I've been reading, I can't remember where I was reading about this, but it was where Netanyahu in the Israeli context, celebrating what he saw as the demise of the Arabists in the foreign office. You know, the foreign office traditionally yeah, has yeah. been seen well, very much as Arabs. Sorry, I've just broken your rule, but I do remember when I'd just become the Minister of State in the Foreign Office and <laughs> Boris Johnson was <laughs> the Foreign Secretary. You've broken the rule the within three minutes. No, but it, it relates to it because it, it's always struck with me. Boris Johnson invited me to breakfast in the Travellers Club just around the corner from where he was living and Carlton Terrace, which is the Foreign Secretary's house. And he turned up late with his bodyguards and there was no real breakfast available. But what he did was rant at me about Arabists in the Foreign Office. And the implication was very strongly, you're an Arabist, Rory, you're part of this Arabist thing. Um, and I'm going to make a speech. And he was essentially suggesting to me over breakfast that he was going to make a very punchy speech about Islam, Arabs, terrorism, calling out the Arabists, making the case for Israel. So this thing about the Arabists, mm. which goes all the way back to Lawrence of Arabia, and was at the heart of the problems, the British mandate in Palestine, when Britain was trying to balance very, very unsuccessfully Jewish and Arab movements within Palestine during the 30s and 40s. But the accusation was always that the British Arabists were too much on the side of the Arabs and, and not sufficiently pro-Israeli. And it was interesting to hear Boris Johnson leaning into that quite mm. as hard. Well, that, and, and I think there's something in it. I can recall after one of the during one of the kind of big crises in the middle east when we were in power i can't remember the guy's name but there was somebody there from the foreign office that was i mean you couldn't get him to say anything really positive about israel or indeed about the united states in relation to their handling of this issue so there was maybe something in that but but it was interesting that netanyahu saw that as a significant thing that the foreign office as he saw it was well, it, it's, been, it's been incredibly dramatic because by the time, and this was partly under New Labour actually, that you broke the link between um, the language training, the area expertise and the ambassadorial jobs. So by 2010, 12 out of the 15 ambassadors in the Middle East couldn't speak Arabic. Whereas a generation before, they had all been through Arabic language training, often in, in a language school in, in Lebanon. And the Foreign Office really prided itself on people who spoke really beautiful Fusa. The, the last... Um, legacy of this is someone we've spoken about before who, who you appointed was Gerard Russell, who was mm. the spokesman on excellent Al Jazeera. Man. Very excellent man who does speak very beautiful Arabic, but there definitely was a period where that was broken. Yeah. Um, I, th I think you can get through this one without mentioning Boris Johnson because you've now you, you've got one mark against yeah, your yeah, name yeah. and we've got yeah. a month to go now. Katrina Riddell, the COVID inquiry has raised massive issues about the roles of civil servants and special advisors, but what exactly is the difference between the two and who do and who should politicians actually listen to? The difference is that civil servants 
sit the Civil Service Selection Board, um, join and serve a full professional career, traditionally of 40 years, ending up with an index-linked pension, and they remain, regardless of which government comes in and which government goes out, and they work their way up, eventually become directors, director generals, permanent secretaries. And that's really 99.9% of the government are these professional civil servants. But sitting at the central government are these very small collection of people of whom the members of parliament who become ministers are one lot, and the other lot are these special advisors who are appointed by the ministers by whichever political party happens to be in power. There will be a number of them in number 10, and then each minister will have one, two, or three of these people, usually somebody focusing on press and somebody focusing on the more political side. And people who enjoy a yes minister or yes prime minister, there's already the beginnings of one of these figures who mm. pops around the corner. Anyway, give us your sense on the difference between the two and how you see the, the use of the special advisor and how you think about them. I think the significance has grown probably. I was a special advisor in that I was appointed by Tony Blair. And the big difference... And, and you came in from the outside. You hadn't yeah. been a civil servant all your life. No, no, never been a civil servant. Jonathan Powell had been a civil servant. Most of the special advisors were from different sorts of backgrounds. We had a... F I can't remember how many we had in total. You know, it wasn't hundreds. It was in double figures, but it wasn't hundreds. Gordon had a quite a few in the Treasury. I think we're limited in most Ed, Ed, ministers. Ed Balls was one. Ed Balls, Ed Miliband was so, so another. Often their routes to becoming MPs. Absolutely. George Osborne, David Cameron was special advisor, Matt Hancock's was special well, advisor. Well, if I go through some of ours, Andrew Adonis went to the House of Lords, Pat McFadden, hopefully in the next cabinet, James Pennell, who went into the cabinet, David Miliband. So a lot of them did go that route. But the big difference is that we, in a sense, were allowed to be political. Now, I wasn't allowed to represent the prime minister in a political capacity. I couldn't go and do a number 10 briefing and start you know, slagging off the opposition. But we were allowed to give political advice as well as, as it were, policy advice. I think that's the big difference. And I think that the politicians, it depends on the politicians, I think they probably do listen more to special advisors in that the special advisor is probably in their ear more. Um, the special advisor is probably likely to be at all the meetings, whereas a civil servant would dip in and out according to what it was that was being discussed. But I, there were some ministers who actually, if their relations with the civil service were very, very good, the special advisor might play a secondary role. But I think in most cases, I don't know what it was like when you were in government, but I think in most cases, the special advisor was probably the one that the minister listened to most. What I noticed is that it can be tricky because often the special advisors are very young, bright, but not often deep specialists in the particular area they're working on. Mm. And so I remember as a backbencher being pretty frustrated with the special advisors in defense, the foreign office, DFID, talking about things like Afghanistan because they were you know, bright people in their late 20s. And they'd who, probably been somewhere else five minutes earlier exactly. because their minister just moved in. And yet you're absolutely right. Often the minister listened to them very carefully and they really processed the papers mm. for the minister and whispered in the minister's ear. Mm. There's a tradition in the Conservative Party also that um, frustrated me. People like Pretty Patel would do it of bringing in special advisors from things like the Taxpayers Alliance, which yeah. is this sort of Tufton Street yeah. setup. So when I was in Diffid, she brought in a special advisor who was very much there to make the radical case against aid. The sort of um, uh, so, I think people can use their special advisors as sort of disruptors to challenge the civil services. Mm. Now, there's a question here from somebody called Matthew Taylor. I don't know if that is Matthew Taylor, who was a special advisor. I suspect it's not. Um, what are your views on how to better support the mental health of politicians, given the significant abuse they often face? And how can we break down these barriers to encourage and support more young people to get involved in seeking elected office? I was very interested in the um, 
you read one of the adverts recently for BetterHelp, and I was interested that you said that you'd been getting therapy for the first time. Do you think that's something you'd have benefited from when you were actually an active politician? Yes, probably. I mean, I think I definitely benefit from it. What made you decide to do it? Oh, that I was feeling very unsettled. Um, and partly trying to process my experience as a politician. I mean, I think my book, Politics on the Edge, says he plugging it again, is largely about trying to describe why it is such a bizarre, horrifying, strange environment. Did you find the, this is my motto, Think in Ink, did you find that writing the book itself helped? Yes, really helped, really helped me clarify and really dig into why I found it such an odd profession. I mean, I was thinking about this last night, somebody was trying to say to me, what's wrong with it? And the, the example I came up with was Liz Truss, that I remember arriving as the environment minister. I'd been in the job for a few hours and I thought, this is unbelievable. It's so wonderful. I'm now the environment minister and this is my chance to really make a difference, to plant another 300 million trees, to clean up our air, to clean up our beaches and water. What a privilege. And Liz Truss came to see me and said, um, Rory, I want you to produce a 10-point plan on the National Park. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I'm the National Parks Minister. Okay. So I said, Secretary of State, great. I'll get the Chief Executive's National Parks and we'll spend a few weeks working on this. And I'll be able to come up with a vision for the next 20 years, the National Parks, the United Kingdom. You imagine how wonderful that is. And she said, no, no, no. I, I want it by Thursday evening. It was Tuesday. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, come on, Rory, how difficult can it be? I can tell you, you know, number one, get young people into nature. Number two, clean up the National Parks. I don't know, get seven together. And sure enough, Daily Telegraph, Friday morning, Liz Truss's seven-point plan for the National Parks. See, that is probably a classic example of Liz Truss thinking she needs something and has said to her special advisor, I'm having lunch with the Telegraph, I want to give them a story, what would it be? Classic. Yeah, and she then didn't think about National Parks ever again. I don't think she ever visited a National Park again. And I thought it's so odd. I mean, this is part of the sickness, the whole thing, that, that she wouldn't feel what an amazing opportunity to really think hard about national parks. Mm. And what about this question about supporting mental, supporting the mental health politicians? I, I had a, several MPs, not all Labour, but mainly Labour, several MPs who contacted me before the last election saying that they couldn't face the campaign and they were thinking of jacking it in or what advice did I have to get them through psychologically, etc. And I didn't realise, having worked there for so many years, I didn't realise there actually is a psychological support network within Parliament, but so many of the MPs don't want to use it because they're worried about the stigma attached to it. Yeah. I think the stigma's going down a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. it's going down a lot, there's but, no doubt about but, that. But, but it remains the most poisonous work environment. I mean, we, we'll see more about this, but there's some horrifying revelations about the Conservative Party now coming out where it looks as though the party may have been paying victims who were raped by a serving MP and that this is all being covered up. I mean, it's so horrible. The combination of lack of seriousness, genuine kind of bullying and brutality, running from the former speaker right the way through the backbenchers, the Dominic sexual Rob. assaults and the sexual assaults and allegations. I mean, it, it is the most when, when you When you read, I don't know if you read Chris Bryant's book, but when he lists all the kind of personal life scandals that there have been in this parliament, and I think the chapter is called, Is This the Worst Parliament We've Ever Had? And he, he reaches the conclusion that it, that it is. And some of these things now, it's almost like they just come and go in a day and people just move on to the next one. I don't think there's any environment like it. And of course, one of the things that we should be thinking about is people talk about it, they never do anything about it. What would it mean to have some sort of induction process for MPs to try to share values with them, to try to set up standards, to try to provide an some kind of HR system in a light touch way to guide mm. people? And the problem is everybody 
every MP is a sole trader who thinks they're accountable only to their constituents and they don't really have a boss, which allows them to behave in these completely horrifying kind of... Um, mm. When I was at Durr, the Dorset, the Bridport Book Festival, doing the Q&A, there was a question which has been sort of troubling me ever since. It was a woman who was talking about abuse in social media and so forth. And she actually, if I paraphrase her question, she said, you know, how have you managed to go from being a kind of national and international hate figure to somebody that we all quite like? And I've thought about that a lot because I think I definitely said to myself, I have to develop a really thick skin and it has to be real. And developing a thick skin whilst remaining sensitive to things that do matter, sensitive to people, sensitive to opinion, sensitive to the needs of others, which I think you need in, in politics. I think it's a very, very hard thing to do. I think a lot of MPs could do with actually thinking about how they do that. I definitely did it by, by saying to myself, I am not going to care what most people think about me. I'm going to care about what the people I care about think about me. And right. That's it. Right. And I find that's the only well, way the, I can do it. That's the problem, isn't it? Because the, the risk is you develop a thick skin and then you end up lacking empathy for yeah. anyone. Yeah. But I think as long as you care for the people that you care about, you will hopefully You'll be able to keep have, something the, alive. have the empathy. Yeah. Well, uh, Alistair, I think we should take a break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Question for you. Jim McGuinn, if Labour win the next election, what are the top three things they must do on day one? Come, on, give us a stat. Well, give us two out of three. Well, day one, the first thing you have to do is appoint a cabinet and appoint a government. That's the first thing. But th th day one is also when you dropped your Independence of Bank of England thing. No, I think it was day two. Day two? I think it was day two. <laughs> right. But pretty quick. Pretty quick. It might even have been, I can't, it was very, very yeah, soon. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So you'd kept that up your sleeve to yeah. do immediately. I suspect that, so let's say Keir Starmer becomes prime minister. He goes outside Downing Street. He makes a speech setting out a sort of the big picture thing. I think, I think actually being clear about a strategy for growth has got to be the first thing and probably indicating that this is a long-term plan. Am I right that the Bank of England thing you'd kept secret until that moment? And so it was a sort of surprise for people or not? Or maybe just surprise me. You don't remember it as being kept secret particularly. No, I think it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, yeah. Was. it was. We talked a lot about, you know, the importance of economic stability. Right. And, you know, we just interviewed Mark Carney on, on leading. It was, that's why I was very interested to ask him whether he felt that it was surprising that the country took so long to get an independent Bank of England, and, and he basically said yes. But no, that was very much Gordon Brown wanting to arrive with a really big moment, and my God, it worked. Politically, economically, yeah. So it'd be good, but good for Labour to find one of those things, although they're not going to reveal it on the rest of politics because they need to keep it secret today too. Well, I think what I think it should be, Rory, is to say, well, look, you know, we've basically got the message from the public. The reason we've been re-elected is people realise that Brexit is a total dead duck and, um, and we, we'll we, go, we go back yeah, in. And we think referendums are so divisive we won't bother having one. There we are. Now, that would really wake people up. That would certainly wake people up. I think it's highly unlikely. very excited about that. Um, Tom Huitzinger. 
Does Rory ever get frustrated at Alistair's informality towards guests stroke distinguished colleagues, i.e. Rory referring to Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor versus Campbell's Arnie? Well, shall we, what was the person called who asked this question? Tom Huitzinger. Tom Huitzinger. Mr. Huitzinger, do you? Mr. Huitzinger, OBE, I'm going to throw in an honour for him. What you don't know, Tom, if I may, is that before we started recording, I said to Governor Schwarzenegger, what do we call you? Arnie, Arnold, whatever. And he said, you call me whatever you want to call me. But you, you don't think that actually asking that question, it's very difficult for someone to say, I want you to call me governor. No, but he could have said, well, most people call me governor, right? <laughs> but I don't buy this thing about, look, I think with American presidents, if, if I were to meet Donald Trump right now, I'm not comparing Schwarzenegger to Trump, there is no way in the world I'm calling him Mr. President. But what do you think, he, what do you think he'd reply if you said to him, what, Donald, what, what do you want me to call you? Trump? Yeah. God. <laughs> your majesty, uh, your highness. No, I probably am more informal than you. I never called Tony Blair prime minister. That's true. I did, that's I, true. I, 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 I didn't know, but I mean, in the job, uh, I didn't go into him and say, "Would you like a cup of tea, Prime, Prime Minister? Minister?" I actually, when I um, text Rishi Sunak, I've stopped saying Rishi. I now say Prime Minister. Do you? Mm, even a little. Can text. you show me the last text you sent? What did he reply? Well, I think he, he replied, "Thanks." I think I congratulated him on something. Creep! You told me. <laughs> you told me that, that you realised when you become an awful politician was when you started congratulating <laughs> David Cameron on yeah, his speeches. This is genuinely, he done which impressed me. Now, what, the AI summit. I don't, I don't get that. Now, Sorry, you can't just expect me to put my <laughs> whole life out there. <laughs> I've got a lot of anyway, Why did you call him governor? Though? Oh, well, speaking of that, actually, we've got a question on this, what? given what you've just done to me. What? Steve Henderson, given that Westminster and Scottish politicians get away with deleting WhatsApp messages, what's the point of a public inquiry? Should the law be changed to make it an offence for a politician to delete messages? Or should Alistair have a right to read my little text to Rishi Sunak? He is the Prime Minister. You are a, an active political figure, even if you're not a politician. You might be influencing decisions, for all we know. You're being very secretive about these secret discussions you've never told me about. Unless it was, Rishi, you may think we give you a bit of a hard time on this podcast, but we'd like to have you on as a guest. That Unless might, that, that was might your be message. Permitted. That might be permitted, yeah. No, I think the WhatsApp thing, look, we, the culture has moved. But I, I think that as the culture has moved, if you're in public life now, I think other than for personal family stuff and what have you, I think you've got to be very, very careful about what problems, you say. One of the problems, though, is that you brought in, New Labour brought in this Freedom of Information Act, which means that anything that you say and write down the yeah. formal civil service process is liable to be released to the public. So it drove people partly to WhatsApps. Mm. Well, they drove us to post-it notes a lot of the time. Post-it notes, okay. yeah. And that is problematic because actually that's less good for government because it means there's not a proper record of things. They're mm. not documented in the right way. But some of these allegations, extraordinary. Helen McNamara said that her texts and WhatsApps had been deleted by the civil service. They'd asked for her phone and they just deleted them. Nicola Sturgeon has deleted all the WhatsApps that she exchanged during the COVID inquiry. But I think the problem is that if you then go after the WhatsApps, the politicians will then be driven to even more desperate measures. Look, Tony, I think Tony Blair says in his book that he kind of thinks that freedom of information broadly was a mistake. I, I don't think it was a mistake. I think that there should be kind of as much transparency as you can afford. But in a serious political culture, which we don't really have, there would be a general understanding that that does mean that there has to be a process where there can be division and disagreement as policies being developed without every single exchange over a decision being hung out. For and, and of course, the problem is that you want to encourage politicians to admit when they don't know things, ask stupid questions, mm. 
come up with controversial ideas. And of course, you freeze all that if there's a risk that that is immediately FOI'd and there's a front page story saying, you know, Rory Stewart asked, where exactly is Cameroon when he was the Africa minister? Yeah, which actually is not a terrible question. Not a terrible question. I didn't know exactly where Cameroon no. was when I was the African minister, but I wouldn't want that all over the front page of the newspaper. No, you wouldn't. Now, Earl Haig, Alistair, when did you meet Quentin Tarantino and Ian Duncan Smith? And this is an extraordinary photograph, apparently in front of what looks like a sort of Christmas tree and a rather nice column. And actually, it isn't a picture of Quentin Tarantino. It is a picture of Dominic Cummings, Ian Duncan Smith, and a very youthful, smiling Alistair Campbell. And Earl Haig is presumably the descendant of General Haig. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's an Earl, isn't he? He's the descendant of Haig who commanded us in the First he World War. He might just be somebody who's called Earl Haig. No, no, he isn't. No, no, there is only one Earl Haig. He's a member of the House of Lords who's uh, descended from the General in the First right, World War. Right, so, so the picture is of me with my hair a bit of a mess. And I think that's Fiona's head over Dominic Cummings' shoulder. Yeah, I think it is. I'm shaking hands with Ian Duncan Smith, who at the time was the boss of Dominic Cummings. And do you recognize the, the building? No, only because you told me. You told me it was ah, the U.S. Embassy. It's, it's yeah. Wingfield House. Yeah, yeah. It's the American ambassador's residence. Yep. It was an Independence Day bash. Dominic Cummings was there with Duncan Smith. And Dominic Cummings basically said, you know, why don't you have a picture with Ian? Or IDS or whatever he called him those days. And yeah, it's a bit of an odd picture, really, isn't it? So the, the story that I got yesterday walking past my house was that in the other picture that we've been discussing. So hold on a minute. Walking past your house, you got this story. Well, I was, yeah, because well, I was walking. Well, why was I walking past? It was a bit weird. But anyway, I was walking the kids, I think, to school. And I was stopped by my neighbour and she's listening to the podcast. And she said, her father was an MP, she said that the reason why John Major, Tony Blair and Paddy Ashdown were laughing so much is that John Major was explaining that one of his goldfish had got sunburnt and was describing how his brother and he had to remove the second goldfish in the tank and try to coat it in sun cream before putting it back I in see, the tank. I think that rings a bell now. I, after I mentioned the photo, I did send Tony a WhatsApp message and said, with the picture, do you remember what you were laughing about? He said, no idea. John Major was obviously telling a funny story, but he couldn't remember. But did John Major mention that maybe? I, I don't know where she where she. Well, we should put it. that picture again, but also the one of me and Dominic Cummings and Ian Duncan Smith in the newsletter. The one thing we haven't got a picture of is a picture of me and Governor Schwarzenegger, instead of which we have a picture of the two of us sitting in the studio with him slumped in the chair with me I looking know, so much larger than him. He looks massive compared yeah. to him. Yeah, I know. But I, I wanted a photograph with the governor. But Well, that was a picture with the governor. You wanted a classic handshake. Yeah, yeah or an arm wrestle like you I and me. I think the arm wrestle, you, you, yeah, I think you might have lost. I mean, bench pressing <laughs> 560 pounds. Sort of, I think you might have you on that one. It's quite interesting how many conservative leaders Dominic Cummings has had considerable contempt for. <laughs> no, I suspect he's got contempt yeah, for all so of them. Ian Duncan was the one who he said was thick as a... Thick as a plank? Thick as, a plank, as, a, thick as, thick as mints. Was he thick as mints? Or was that David Davis? I think David Davis might have been thick as mints. He certainly... I've never heard Dominic Cummings say a flattering word about it. I wonder what he thinks about you. So he actually did... Um, he said recently you'd said something sensible. Yeah, he said, I don't really agree with Rory very much, but some of the stuff that he'd said recently about... Oh, I think I was grumbling about civil service, which obviously he oh, likes. Right, okay, he loves doing that. Yeah. So here's a question from Tom Hooper. Now, Tom Hooper, if it's the same Tom Hooper, is a great film director, film producer. His question is, whose job is it in government to think about and plan for the long term, 10, 20, 50 years ahead? How can the system be improved to help the government think further ahead and ensure that we are prepared and resilient for what is predicted or unknown? Now, that's a really big 
important question. Mm. Tom actually also, we talked about King's Speech, I think he directed that film which I think called The King's Speech about how George VI learned to overcome his stuttering. With with Colin Firth. Colin Firth, yeah. yeah. Um, So 10, 20, 50 years, I mean, it's something the Chinese obviously really pride themselves on, being able to think in these much longer time frames. The monarchies in the Middle East, very proud of being able to think in much longer time frames. Well, I think China is a very good example, isn't it? I mean, they they have, they don't just have five-year plan, they do have kind of 10-year, 20, 50-year plans. But of course, they're not democracies. Is this a related question from Lloyd? It'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales, which is doing politics differently by making politicians focus on social environmental issues over short-termism and quick wins. This is a whole different way of doing government. The answer to Tom's question, I guess there is nobody with that responsibility in government. It would be the Prime Minister if the Prime Minister decided that was a thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it would be something the Cabinet Office would probably would have, then to have to do. Have to take the lead on, yeah. Yeah. Because most of those long-term challenges would be cross-cutting. It wouldn't just be sort of, you know, for one department. Look, there was a period of our term in office when Tony was very, very focused on this thing about, you know, 10-year plans for all the big public services. And that even 10 years felt within the context of running a government felt like a long, long time. Yeah. That is a very, very good question. Maybe when we do our chat GPT, Rest is Politics Manifesto, we should feed that one in. Very good. Have a long-term thinking czar. Final one for you. From The World of Lard. Extraordinary name, The World of Lard. I appreciate this might be seen as a hot take, but are our MPs and ministers paid enough compared to people with similar responsibilities in the private sector? Would we attract more higher quality candidates if the rewards were greater? So to put it in context, when I was the Secretary of State for International Development, I had a budget of 13 billion, so 13,000 million pounds a year to spend. And I guess we were paid just over 100,000 pounds a year. Not bad. Do you think people should be paid more than that? Well, one of the best governments in the world is reckoned to be the Singapore government, where the average salary for ministers, the cabinet is about a million dollars, and they go out and get the best people and put them in there. I think politicians probably should be paid more, simply because I think done well, it's a very, very difficult and very, very important job. I think the problem at the moment is not many of them are doing it that well. Look, I'm sure you didn't go into politics to get rich. I am I'm sure I'm not alone in that when I jumped from media to politics, I took a very, very large pay cut. But I, th- I do think that one of the reasons why the gene pool has narrowed so much is that a lot of really bright people, smart people, you know, they realize that they can actually make a lot of money doing different things. The other worry I have is that we make politics yet again, as it was in the olden days, something that only people of independent wealth or can actually do. Yeah, either people like yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, who have this very ascetic kind of view of the world, mm. or people like a lot of the conservative front bench who are people who've made money before yeah. they've gone into politics. When, when Which we were, is true in the US. I mean, their senators are almost all millionaires. And also because they have to raise so much money to fight campaigns. Yeah. Which, and then if you don't have access to money, it's quite hard to, to raise but it. But equally, I think it would be totally electorally or feel oh, electorally very, very different. Absolute nightmare. I mean, so Keir Starmer is not going to suggest that MPs no. should be paid more, is he? Let's not pay nurses more, but let's pay MPs yeah. more. That is yeah. not going to help yeah. anybody. But yeah, when we were coming back from Bridport, we were talking to somebody who said that as you go out through this town, you'll drive past the wall of Richard Drax's estate. So, so he's, he's extraordinary. He was a TV news presenter, very good looking. He was an, an army officer, comes from this um, extraordinary parliamentary family where one of his ancestors, and he's got a quadruple barreled name that I'm not going to attempt, but it's got Earl and Earnley and Plunkett and Drax in various different directions. Um, but he had an ancestor who was in the House of Commons in the late 19th century, direct ancestor, who I think didn't speak for something like 20 years. 
and then eventually got to his feet, and everyone was incredibly excited that Drax was about to speak. And he said, Mr. Speaker, it's a bit hot. Do you think somebody could open the window? And then sat down and didn't speak again for his 40-year parliamentary career. Well, Richard Drax MP, MP for South Dorset, which is where we were, his name is Richard Grosvenor Plunkett Ernie Earl Drax. Very good. Yeah. And why is he so wealthy, though? Well, it's right back to the slave trade. Slave trade, yeah. yeah. So I think in the interests of context, um, I think the Drax family would acknowledge that they made a lot of money in the 18th, early 19th century from their plantations in Barbados, which were dependent entirely on slavery. But they also are descended from many other aristocratic, sub-aristocratic landed families in Britain going back to the Middle Ages and had huge land. I mean, he's very unusual because you don't want to give the impression that the modern Conservative Party is dominated by these people. He's one of these things who literally is like a figment out of the 18th, early 19th century, still somehow sitting in the British Parliament. Mm. So anyway, the wall is like you drive past it for ages and every few hundred yards, there's a sort of vast statue of an animal, a stag or a lion or something. So so what I don't want is a House of Commons full of yep. slave trading Tories. Yeah. <laughs> he's not few, himself I think a few social workers would be really good. No, but I, I agree. And it's um I think it's very unfortunate. But the only way of addressing it is if some politician has the courage to think about increasing salaries, which I think is very, very difficult to do. Very, very Meanwhile, hard. people will feel that they can earn much more money, have much less abuse, much less stress, yeah. see more of their families doing something else. He's, uh, according to, I'm now looking at Dorset Live, he's number three on the Dorset Rich List. And as of December 2020, according to The Guardian, he was worth £150 million. Yes. Well, I mean, he's, it's one of these very, very grand sort of sub-aristocratic landed families that have been owning Dorset for 300 years. It's quite interesting looking at him he's, he's not the person I thought he was. One of his ancestors in the 19th century was particularly sort of evil and cruel and put an enormous amount of the family money into building an enormous mausoleum, like a sort of pharaonic pyramid to himself. So they're quite an eccentric group. So let's end on uh, Richard Drax and I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.